You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the nationwide protests, the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time. I'm Yvette. And I'm Nicole. Quick disclaimer, because lawyers need and live by disclaimers, the lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. I'm Elisa, and today our podcast is about, is about a pandemic. Not COVID-19, but the 1918 flu pandemic. And our guest today is the author of an award-winning book on the subject, and it has gained a lot of interest recently, so we're very fortunate to have John M. Berry, the author of The Great Influenza. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So, as we all know on this podcast, if you don't have history, you don't have context. Mr. Berry, this is an amazingly detailed history of the 1918 pandemic. Um, Welcome. We're glad you could make it. I'm pleased to be here. Please call me John. Well, John, again, thank you for being on the podcast. And to start off, uh, we'd just like to ask you a bit about the beginnings of this pandemic. And unlike uh, unlike what's going on now, it's not anything that anyone could refer to as a so-called China flu. This was a disease that was born in the American heartland. So could you talk about the origins of this particular disease? Well, it's funny that you say that. Uh, in the book, I advanced the hypothesis that it started in Kansas and uh, even wrote a scientific journal article on that, which got a lot of traction. Uh, I never said it was definitive. Uh, it was also always just a hypothesis. Uh, but the book originally came out 16 years ago. There's been a tremendous amount of work on ni- the 1918 pandemic since then. And I now think, although Kansas is a possibility, uh, and other people have advanced uh, France, uh, Vietnam, and China as likely sites of origin. I now think China is probably the most likely site, but Kansas is still possible, so is New York City. We will never know where it started, and it could have started anywhere. As we know, the 2009 pandemic started uh, in either San Diego or Mexico. Wow. So can you tell us the state of American medicine um, when the 1918 pandemic hit? It had just become truly scientific. Uh, throughout the 19th century, American medicine pretty much lagged the rest of the world. It uh, Harvard, Even after the Civil War, you could fail four out of nine courses and still get your MD. Uh, Harvard only began a reform after one of its recent graduates killed four straight patients because he didn't know the lethal dose of opium. Uh, 20 years after Pasteur launched the germ theory and had some major discoveries, uh, no one at Harvard Medical School knew how to operate a microscope, or nor was there a microscope. Uh, the same could be said for Columbia and pretty much every other medical school in the country. But the reason, to quote William Welsh, who was the founding dean of the Hopkins Medical School, uh, which came out, I guess, 1891, I think, 
the results were better than the system because of a lot of American doctors were, were quite dedicated, went to Europe for training. And in Europe, uh, medicine had become fully scientific. Uh, there was a very, very rapid revolution in American medicine led by Hopkins and led by William Welsh, whom I just mentioned, and who is certainly the most important figure in the history of American medicine and arguably the most important figure in the history of American science. Uh, Hopkins set standards and attracted you know, outstanding students and every other school had to compete to catch up. Uh, then in 1910, in fact, I left out the fact that practic prior to Hopkins, almost every medical school, including Harvard, uh, the faculty salaries were paid 100% by student fees. So they had every reason to admit any student whose check would clear the bank. Didn't really care what the uh, uh, qualifications were. And all that changed with incredible speed. Um, in 1910, Abraham Flexner, uh, whose brother was a protege of, of Welsh, went to Hopkins and was the first uh, head of the Rockefeller Institute now Rockefeller University. Anyway, Abraham Flexner uh, wrote a muckraking uh, study of American medicine, uh, you know, showing that in many med schools as late as 1910, not a single one student ever in uh, looked at a patient, uh, again, no, med no, no autopsies, no training, and these people were launched upon the public. And overnight, roughly half the medical schools in the United States closed, emerged, and right now, and soon thereafter, every medical school in the country met certain minimum standards, and those minimum standards are quite high. There is no bad medical school in America right now. There are some that are better than others. Uh, that scientific revolution really began with Hopkins. And uh, as I said, it, it took over with amazing speed. Uh, by the time of the war, the best American scientists are, were without a doubt equal to the best in the world. Uh, uh, for example, one, one figure in the book, uh, minor figure in the book, but it'd give you a sense of just how good he was and how good the medicine was. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in 1966 for work he actually did in 1911. They won't give you the prize until they know you're right. So he was 55 years ahead of the curve. Uh, and, and some of the developments by uh, the scientists who were the main figures in the book, uh, some of them were really astounding and uh, revolutionary. So I, I'd like to ask you, though, the um, obviously the pandemic coincided um, with World War One and our um, our sort of change in tone uh, directed by the then president. So can you talk about um, who died during that pandemic, where they were dying and what the impact was on national security, um, including some of the institutions that cropped up to partially in response to it, but also already existed that treated this through a national security lens? Well, I don't think in terms of national security. So uh, 
I'll try to answer your question and you can interpret it as you will for the first, unlike COVID-19, you know, 95, in 1918, 95% of the deaths, approximately 95% were people under the age of 65. They were younger than 65. Uh, roughly two thirds of the dead were aged 18 to 45. The peak age for death was probably 27 or 28. Uh, so this was, of course, the uh, exact age for soldiers. Uh, there was a first wave, which was really pretty mild. Uh, the first signs of it erupted in the United States, which going back to you, you, the first question, I guess, was part of why I hypothesized that it started in Kansas, because that was the first known outbreak. Uh, and, I, and pretty much every contemporary observer, looking back on the pandemic, thought that it traveled with American troops to Europe in March and April. Uh, Ludendorff, the German commander, uh, blamed it for the failure of the last German offensive, its last real effort to win the war. They launched that, uh, recognizing that once the United States got fully engaged, uh, they could not possibly win the industrial might and the numbers of soldiers the United States could throw in would certainly tip the balance. So they were trying to win the war before the U.S., really got a lot of soldiers and materiel over there. Um, personally, I don't think that was uh, true. I think Ludendorff was looking for an excuse. I mean, there was influence on both sides of the trenches. Uh, it makes me think, I remember when Joe Paterno was the coach at Penn State, once he lost in a big upset the Navy in a rainstorm, and a, uh, a reporter after the game asked him if he if he thought the rain was why they lost, and Paterno said, well, he didn't know for sure because he was only standing on his sideline, but to the best of his knowledge, it was raining on the other side of the field too. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, the same goes for Ludendorff. His soldiers did in fact suffer, no question about it, but there were plenty of uh, soldiers uh, France, Britain, the United States, uh, who had influence as well. Uh, in, in terms of comparing it to combat deaths, uh, only a tiny, tiny uh, number of soldiers. I mean, millions of soldiers died in combat. Hundreds of thousands in a single battle and were done. I mean, awful slaughter. Uh, the U.S. got involved late, of course. There were a little over 50,000 combat deaths and like 50,001 deaths from influenza. So there were not a significant number of U.S. military killed either in uh, combat or uh, from influenza. Uh, and a lot of the U.S. soldiers who died, uh, died in camps in the United States, uh, which were quite hard hit. Uh, you know, obviously, you've got soldiers packed closely together in barracks. Uh, at the same time, they were in the demographic that was hit the hardest. Uh, so the, the military bases and the troop ships 
which Wilson, the president, he was advised to stop sending troops. They were like, became almost floating coffins. Uh, was advised to stop sending troops to Europe. He refused. He, he said that if they died in battle on the front line, they were just soldiers. You know, they, if they died on a troop ship going to the front lines, the same difference. He equated those two deaths, although one was completely preventable and the other wouldn't have been. Uh, and I guess that's, as I say, in terms of national security, that, you know, I don't really think it had much impact on the war. Uh, and I don't think the war played a significant role in its spread. Uh, it would have gotten all over the world regardless. I think the only thing that the pandemic did do uh, was accelerate the spread in Europe because more soldiers from the U.S. went over there at the same time. So you're your index, instead of having a few index cases, uh, you would have you would have had a hundred, you know, a, a few thousand perhaps index cases. Uh, in fact, there were models uh, that were done, not so much of 1918, but relevant today to things like closing borders, which of course is a national security issue. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the mod there were modeling by CDC concluded that uh, if you were 99% successful in closing your borders, you would delay the arrival of an influenza pandemic by, by about three weeks. And if you were 95% successful in closing your borders, you would delay them by about three weeks. Uh, that's from memory, but I think that's, my memory is generally pretty good uh, on those numbers. Uh, it's one reason the World Health Organization does not recommend closing borders in pandemics. They're just not effective. So I guess what I'm asking too, that's a, and thank you for that response. It, it, it seems like even the logistics of dealing with the numbers of dead bodies impacted the military, um, as you note in your book. But I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the doctors were also forced into the cadres of various services. That's uh, very true. Uh, an extraordinary number of the best doctors. And again, we were talking earlier about the state of medical practice. So your best doctors were really young, your youngest doctors who had graduated from med school after the scientific revolution had arrived in medical, school, medical schools. And a huge percentage of them were incorporated into the military, uh, most of them drafted, uh, but so were practically all your senior scientists. Uh, Welsh, whom I mentioned earlier, was the dean of the Hopkins Medical School. He became a colonel. Uh, he worked out physically in the office. His desk was in the office of, of uh, Gorgas, who was the uh, Army Surgeon General and one of the heroes in terms of yellow fever from Panama Canal. He cleaned yellow fever out of the Panama Canal, which without which might well, certainly many people would have died in trying to uh, build it and yellow fever largely uh, prevented the French from succeeding. Uh, the entire Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, which is now Rockefeller University, the entire institute was incorporated lock, stock and barrel into the army. It became our army auxiliary, auxiliary 
that one, uh, laboratory number one. Uh, and that was not unusual. You know, uh, uh, one of the characters whom I actually dedicated the book to his spirit and wrote about in the prologue and at the end of the book, a uh, uh, scientist in Philadelphia named Paul Lewis, he was in the Navy. Uh, a lot of the Harvard scientists uh, were in the Navy. There was a big naval installation in, uh, in Boston. Um, and a like number of nurses. And it's also worth mentioning, going back to one of your earlier questions, that nurses were much better trained by and large than doctors. Uh, you know, the scientific revolution which arrived in medical schools late in the 19th century and early in the 20th century uh, had already taken hold in nursing schools. So most, most professional nurses were extremely uh, well-trained and, and very good scientific basis, very often better than the doctors. It's very interesting to hear about the conscription of various uh, various doctors and and medical institutions into kind of the public service in that way. Um, could you talk a, a little bit more about other ways that government public health institutions were either created or updated in order to address the pandemic as it happened? Well, there there wasn't really. Uh a public health infrastructure that was national. Uh, there were very many local, very good public health departments. Uh, you know, we did have a U.S. public health service already existed. There was already a Surgeon General of the United States. Uh, the shipyards, the shipbuilding facilities had, uh, you know, I mean, they were so important to the war effort that they had uh, a medical staff that was quite important in terms of setting policies and things like that. But most of the and the action really occurred at the city level, not even the state level. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned yet that is extremely important was the context created by the war. Wilson you know, had some legitimate concerns about the loyalty of American soldiers. The largest demographic group was in the United States was German by a wide margin. Uh, he wasn't sure that German Americans would fight against Germany. Uh, Ireland had rebelled, you know, the Easter uprising in Ireland in 1916. Oh, would Irish Americans fight on the side of Britain? So he had some worries, and he, he, he created something called the Committee for Public Information. Uh, and the architect of that committee said, truth and falsehood are arbitrary terms. There's nothing in experience to tell us one is superior to the other. He said the force of an idealized and its, and its inspirational value it matters very little if it is true or false. In this committee, uh, recruited about 100,000 what they called four-minute men uh, who would get up before every vaudeville show, every school board meeting, every public gathering of any kind, or semi-public gathering for that matter, 
and give a brief morale-boosting speech. Uh, and given what I just quoted were the views of the architect of that committee, uh, they were not above distorting the news uh, or outright lying in some cases. So there was fake news coming out routinely during World War I, uh, but it was being generated by the government. Uh, at the same time, there was outright censorship of the press in all the warring nations on Europe. The United States did not directly censor the, chef, the press, the, the same person I just quoted. Uh, he recommended urging self-censorship instead. That was very effective. Uh, there, there was this ginning up of patriotic fervor by Wilson that he thought was absolutely crucial to winning the war, and they did it. Uh, on the banner, I grew up in Providence, and every day the Providence newspaper had a banner headline that said, every German, unless known for years, should be considered a spy. That's not a direct quote, but it's pretty close. You know, they banned the teaching of German in many states. Sauerkraut became liberty cabbage. And the government also passed a law, uh, the Sedition Act, and also an Espionage Act, uh, and the Sedition Act made it punishable by 20 years in jail to, quote, utter, write, print, or publish any disloyal, scurrilous, profane, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States. Uh, truth was not a defense. This law was quite aggressively enforced. A United States congressman, a member of Congress, was sentenced to 10 years under this law. The Supreme Court, after the war, in 1919, upheld the law. And uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. actually wrote the opinion upholding the law, even though he's generally considered a champion of free speech. And from his opinion come two phrases you're familiar with today. One is clear and present danger. And the other is you don't shout fire in a crowded theater. Uh, which was the analogy he used to to uphold that law. Uh, so that that was the context. Uh, you had a propaganda arm unlike any we've seen in the United States, and you had a stick that was wielded aggressively to compel people in the same direction. So I'd say more so than any other time in American history. Uh, we had an attempt to control the way people thought. So I'd love to know, since you're talking about historical context, when it, it came out that um, the, the government was willfully misleading the public um, and was uh, condemning people for telling the truth, uh, what, what was the sense uh, in the public, uh, what was the what was the response at the time for people? Did they say, "Well, the ends justify the means"? We're in an existential crisis; it's okay. Or were people speaking out against um, uh, against uh, these encroachments on civil liberties? 
Well, pretty much everyone went along. You know, Eugene Debs was a socialist candidate for president. He was in prison. Uh, I mean, he, he got a fair number of votes, but people were, were muted uh, and intimidated, or they were so patriotic, uh, they went along. They didn't, of course, realize they were being lied to in general. Uh, it did affect what happened when influenza arrived. Because the government was of the belief that the truth would damage morale and therefore damage the war effort, uh, it did not tell the truth about the influenza pandemic. Uh, you know, one of the uh, national public health leaders said it was known as Spanish flu. Got the name because Spain was not at war and didn't censor its press. And when the first wave hit Spain, they wrote about it. And hence it began, plus the king got sick uh, and uh, became known as Spanish influenza. Uh, the first wave was actually quite mild. The second wave uh, came back to the United States and was quite lethal. Uh, the disease was called Spanish flu. Uh, you had national public health leaders saying, it's ordinary influenza by another name. It was not ordinary influenza. People could die in less than 24 hours after the first symptoms. Some of the symptoms were absolutely horrific. Uh, probably the scariest, I mean, where we have good data in from, from military camps, actually, as many as 15% of, of troops uh, had nosebleed. That was not pleasant but a minority would even bleed from their eyes and ears. Uh, to a lay person, that would be terrifying. And there's some of my doctor friends say that's not too reassuring to doctors either. Uh, so when you have deaths, plus it was much, much more, it's not only more virulent in terms of what it does to the body, but in terms of the case fatality rate, it was much more lethal than what we are facing now. Uh, overall in the West, it was probably only two to two and a half percent case fatality rate. But in the demographic I was talking about, it was much higher than that. Studies among pregnant women, 21% to 71% case fatality in different studies. Uh, according to Metropolitan Life Insurance, over 6%, not case fatality, Fatality, over 6% of the entire population of minors in the age group that we're talking about, the target demographic, died. Over 3% of all the factory workers, not case fatality, fatality. Uh, so roughly a quarter to a third of the factory workers probably got sick. So of that group, probably 10% died. Uh, so when you have case fatality like that, when you have every city in the country running out of coffins, when you have them digging mass graves in coffins in, in many cities, people know they're being lied to when somebody says it's ordinary influenza by another name. And the only impact such lies had was to destroy any trust in authority and destroy any trust in what people were being told. Uh, in Philadelphia, one of the hardest hit cities, and which I wrote about at great length in the book, 
to avoid redundancy, I just focus on really one city and a little bit about other cities. And Philadelphia, when they finally belatedly closed uh, everything down, you know, schools, bars, public gatherings, churches, and so forth, one of the newspapers in Philadelphia actually went so far as to say, this is not a public health measure. You have no cause for alarm. I mean, how stupid did they think people were? So when you see death all around you, and in Philadelphia, you literally had people, had priests driving horse-drawn carts down the street calling upon people to bring out their debt. When you see things like that happening around you and you're being told this is not a public health measure, you have no cause for alarm. It just tells you that you're on your own. This is, uh, this is really, really uh, great context you're giving uh, to this period. I'd love to know, just in this age of war and misinformation uh, in, right in front of your eyes, right? Don't believe your lying eyes. Um, what role did politics play? Was there, was this a kind of uh, bipartisan effort? Was there a um, minority party that was um, outraged by, by some of these abuses? Uh, was everybody sort of rowing in the same direction? What, what, what did the politics look like in the t- at the time? Uh, it was not partisan. Uh, the entire country was united, pretty much not. It was largely united. Remember, it was the Republicans uh, primarily who, who had wanted to go to war, Teddy Roosevelt and so forth. But Wilson, as the Democratic leader, was really catching up to the Republicans. So there were very little signs of discontent and basically none of it was partisan. Uh, There had been a pacifist, uh, not line, but, you know, element in the Democratic Party. Uh, But they were they were essentially silenced Uh, in the propaganda. You know, you have Lusitania, although we didn't go to war for quite a while after that. But, you know, then you have the Zimmerman telegram where Germany is encouraging Mexico essentially to, you know, seize all sorts of things and conspire against the United States. Uh, so there, you know, Germany misplayed its hand, you know, unlimited submarine warfare. Uh, they managed to inflame the American public, uh, it's conceivable if Germany had, had played it differently, then there may might have been uh, considerable resistance to the war in the United States, but they didn't. They, they basically went all out and tried to win it before the U.S. could get seriously involved. So we have all these people... Um, you know, marshalling all their energy to defeat this pandemic. How did it ultimately resolve after burning through so much of the population? Two things. Uh, Two things happened. Number one, the virus is one of the fastest mutating viruses in existence. And 
I think the virus itself probably mutated in the direction of mildness. Its descendants still circulate today, uh, and they were the dominant cause of seasonal influence until they were replaced. It was replaced in 1957 by, by that pandemic virus. Uh, so that's one thing. The virus itself, I think, probably mutated. The other thing is, as people's immune systems uh, became more used to it, as it came around a second and third time, they were better able to adapt to it. Uh, I actually did a uh, scientific journal article, Journal of Infectious Diseases, with a couple of uh, NIH uh, scientists about immunity uh, that was created by exposure uh, to the first wave of the virus. Uh, of course, that immunity faded, uh, but it was very effective over the short term. Again, the influenza virus is quite different from COVID-19, SARS coronavirus too. The virus we're dealing with today is much more stable than influenza, and particularly the spike protein, the antigen that essentially all the vaccines are targeting. I think there, there are some that are looking at other antigens, but almost all of them and all the fast moving ones are targeted at the spike protein, which fortunately has seems particularly stable part of the virus. Hence, there is, you know, great optimism that the vaccines will work at least over a short, relatively short to medium period of time. You scrupulously researched a number of major crises from the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 to the 1918 Spanish flu, which you've just been discussing. Um, and this has led you to some policy work. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, my book happened to come out at the time that uh, there was great concern over H5N1, so-called bird flu. And I'm sure that sold a few books. You know, I, the book took me seven years to write, so I wasn't planning on, on that. But, uh, and uh, an assistant secretary of HHS named Stuart Simonson, who actually is now an assistant secretary of the World Health Organization, assistant director general of the World Health Organization, uh, read it and uh, took it to the secretary, Mike Levitt, who read it and took it to uh, George W. Bush, who actually hit earlier, you know, before he was president, actually read my earlier book, Rising Tide, which you just mentioned, uh, wrote me a nice note. Uh, anyway, uh, Bush read, uh, read it, took it quite seriously and uh, put the weight of the White House behind pandemic preparedness. Uh, the administration did launch, uh, you know, did, I guess there was roughly a $7 billion piece of legislation, uh, including bioterrorism, you know, invest in vaccine manufacturing technology and capacity, uh, create the national stockpile, did all sorts of things. Uh, also included an effort to plan policy for a pandemic and in the sort of conceptualizing the, the early meetings on that. I participated not in the actual writing of the policy, uh, but because a lot of it was based on events in 1918, I, I was asked to get involved. I did, and I pretty much stayed involved, uh, at least with the Bush and Obama administrations. I haven't been involved at all with this administration. But if you were involved, Mr. Berry, what, uh, 
What advice would you give current policymakers, and uh, how would you rate uh, the government's performance uh, in response to this pandemic? Well, on a scale of one to ten, if I'm being generous, I'd give it a two. I think uh, the effort on vaccines, I applaud that, the warp speed. I think any administration would have done it. Uh, you know, Tony Fauci started that literally the day that the uh, Chinese released the uh, genetic sequence uh, back in January and others around the world started looking at it at exactly the same time. Uh, but at least uh, the White House didn't get in the way of that effort. Uh, on everything else, I, th I think the single lesson that 1918 teaches is the importance of telling the truth in a crisis like that. And in those early meetings when I was involved, I was always preaching that. Nobody ever really pushed back. Once in a while I would say, well, you don't want to scare people. My argument would be, yeah, they can handle the truth a lot more than uncertainty or, you know, being lied to and then finding out they're being lied to and then you lose all ability to control the flow of information. Once someone loses their trust in you, you can't get it back, certainly not in the speed with which a crisis is moving. So transparency and truth-telling is written into the federal pandemic plan and it's written into every state plan and internationally it's all the all of those plans take the same approach but of course this administration fell woefully short in that you know i won't say trump was lying because lying you know, requires one to recognize what you're not saying. It's possible that Trump believed what he was saying, uh, but he, obviously he was wrong if he did believe it. And if it was lying, it was that much worse. Uh, the irony is he would be in a much better situation politically had he told the truth. The only time he ever cracked 50% approval was a couple of days after he said we were at war with the virus. People do rally around leaders in crises. Uh, around the world, many national leaders were quite transparent. All of them increased their popularity and had far, far more effective responses to the outbreak, whether you're talking about South Korea or Singapore, whether you're talking about Germany, where Merkel's ratings skyrocketed to 77% approval, probably the highest she ever had, although I don't know that for an absolute fact, but she had been in an afterthought and all of a sudden 77% approval. Not to mention the fact that you know, we haven't done very well in terms of cases, deaths, you know, the debacle of testing, which continues to this day. That is incomprehensible to every person in public health, I think probably around the world. And I believe historians will find it incomprehensible, uh, the chaos uh, of 
the messaging of this White House. And, you know, to this day, you know, Trump doesn't wear masks. Kushner, as we're recording this, Jared Kushner is, you know, flying uh, on El Al in the Middle East uh, because, it, you know, just, uh, you know, the first El Al commercial aircraft from Israel to uh, SUAE. And he's not wearing a mask. And a reporter asks him, where's your mask? And he pulls it out of his pocket. Uh, it's crazy. You know, and, and I think it's directly... Uh, I think it's killed people. And I'm not talking about one or two people. I think it's, you know, there is no reason that the response in the United States had to be this bad. There's no reason we had to have 180,000 dead as I speak today. Mr. Berry, I, uh, I, I don't even know what to say, John. I, I have to process everything that you've just said. I, I will say that to your point about messaging and Leading by example, though, um, I did listen to the MIT researcher on altruism the other day, Yoeli, who said that all, all effective messages um, involve three things in this situation, public messages. They're unambiguous, categorical, and concise. Um, so uh, to your point, um, that would be obviously very helpful. We're really glad that you came in. This has been incredibly interesting. I really enjoyed the book. It was really quite an accomplishment. Um, and I, I wouldn't um, bore our audience with those lengthy process questions, um, except to say that uh, this is a really important book. It remains important. It will be important in the future as we deal with crises again. So we're super glad you made it. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, been interesting. And thanks for the good questions. So I'll reiterate our thanks uh, for you uh, joining us, uh, John. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Um, for everyone who is interested in uh, creating the next crisis response, obviously, you can learn something from John Barry's book, uh, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Plague in History and other books by John Barry at his website. All right, everyone, remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice and be sure to send us comments and feedback. We do like to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on these fast-moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your smartphone or laptop screen. And once more, the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone, and be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart, even though we all have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.